The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Precious Predicaments with Jeanette Abney. Our program is about turning the negative challenges in your life into positive experiences. If you feel that life's issues are bogging you down and there is no hope in sight, you've arrived where you need to be. We'll discuss the challenges and offer solutions that you can start working on immediately. Now, here is your host, Jeanette Abney. Hi, my name is Jeanette, and I want to welcome you to Voice America Empowerment Channel with Jeanette Abney. And today we have live on the air, Amalia Lamb. And I want to introduce Amalia. Amalia, welcome. Good morning, Jeanette. Thank you for having me. Okay, today I want to talk to the viewers about understanding addiction. And not only talking about understanding addiction, but trying to get some insight or give our listeners some encouragement as far as what is addiction? What is it about? How did it happen? And, um, you know, can I be affected? And which is one of the things a person asked me one time, which I found to be very funny. So one of the things we talk about addiction, tell me a little bit about from your perspective in regards to tell me a little bit about who you are, what you do and things of that nature. Okay. Well, Janet, I'm based in Southern California. I am an MSW. I graduated with master's in social work from the University of Southern California not too long ago. Um, and in my work with drug, with substance abusers, the, the patients that I see, the clients that I see are court mandated. So these are people who this addiction has taken over their brain, their bodies, their families, um, their a point where someone else has to intervene and say, you know, your addiction has gone too far. Let's learn some skills as to how we can either prevent a relapse, um, change the way you're communicating, or just stop the blaming or the um, vulnerability of what addiction brings to us. So I want to go back to what addiction, just as a definition of addiction, addiction is a Latin word, and it means enslaved by or bound to. So what I believe is that this addiction kind of controls a person's brain into believing that it's something that they want, something that they need. Um, They have a craving for it, a loss of control over it. They continue to use it whether or not there are negatives. Um, They know that there is a negative consequence to their use. So that's what I believe the understanding of addiction is. Okay, Amalia. So as we talk about that, and one of the things and one of the reasons why I wanted to bring this topic to our show is because a lot of times when we talk about addiction and the task of even defining it in which you did so eloquently is that because it's a challenge to many other professionals in this world, because one of the things we talk about is whether it's physical or whether it's psychological, meaning does it affect the body? Does it affect the mind? You know, some say it can affect both. What is your insight in regards to that, in regards to some of the things that you've seen? 
I think there's a combination of genetics. We have many studies have looked at the generational cycles of addiction. Um, alcoholic parents, some believe that there is a genetic predisposition to when a child of an addict um, has a greater statistics, has a greater chance of becoming an addict. Um, also some neurophysiological consequences in which your brain is altered according to the onset of addiction or the onset of a drug abuse or a substance abuse. Um, for today, we're talking about drug and alcohol abuse because that is what I see in, in my practice. But there's also addiction to food, addiction to emotions, addiction to shopping, addiction to gambling. There's a variety of addiction, but just for today, I just want to clarify that we're going to be, I'm going to be talking about addiction to substances and alcohol. So for me, um, what the literature has shown is that there is, I do believe that there is correlation between the genetics and also the neurophysiological aspects of addiction in which our brain is altered to believe that um, what our brain actually does control what we believe is that what our body needs, if that makes any sense. Yes, it does. And you know what? And one of the things is, and that we find, and when you're talking about not only just dealing with drugs and alcohol, is talking about different other addictions like sex, gambling, computer years, using computers. You know, even though we love Facebook and social media, we find that a lot of individuals are having obsessive compulsiveness in regards to that. And even smoking and, um, let's say, working, which is one of mine. And, um, you know, like you said, the list can go on and on and on. And um, one of the things is that when we talk about that is what happens is sometimes an individual's life can be eventually dominated by the cravings. And a lot of times we don't know what those cravings are or triggers. Can you give us some insight in regards to what a lot of people can experience and what is a craving or a trigger? Mm -hmm. Well, I think that we have to look at what an addiction is. So addiction is when you use it more than you like and you continue to use it despite the negativity or the negative consequences that it has. So we also have to look at this through the eyes of denial because with addiction and with any kind of problem, really, this is the basic layman's term for this is it's a problem that we have to face. There's some pain and there's a problem involved with it. So sometimes we make the matters worse where we just legitimize it. Well, I need this. I can control this. I know people that do this um, more than I do, and there's a, a whole denial aspect of it. So sometimes we just get frustrated and we say, you know, I had a really bad day. I deserve this. Or we have this kind of romantic relationship with our addiction where you love it and you remember, you have good memories and it's kind of altered like, oh, I remember that one time when I did whatever my addiction is and I felt so much better. So there's a combination. It's a very huge umbrella as to how addiction controls our our beings. Um, I mean, we may want to have a better relationship. We, have, we don't want to face a loss. We feel trapped. Uh, we want to change the way that people view us. Uh, or maybe we just start seeing that people around us have started to drinking and are using drugs around us. And you say, you know, well, they're doing it and they're doing fine. I'm stronger than them and I will, I will be okay. So there's a lot of other ways and little external factors that kind of contribute to the ongoing use of our addiction. 
Okay, it's funny you say that, Amalia. I'm looking at some things and some information, and we start talking about the cost of addiction and how much does it cost? And not only the cost, but talking about some of the warning signs and, and my at risk. But one of the things that I see, and we talk about dollars and cents in regards to the cost of addiction, and we're finding that it can be kind of mind-boggling because at least as many people die from alcoholism in the U.S., as many die in from different auto accidents. And a lot of times that's what I hear or, you know, is that kind of your experience when people say, well, it's not going to kill me or everybody's doing it or what am I supposed to do? I'm young. What are some mm-hmm. of the things you see in regards to the cost of addiction? Well, um, if we look at just alcohol addiction, a DUI would be the primary, um, I think, example where you're paying up to that $10,000, your, your car is being impounded, you have to pay daily fees to that. Then you have uh, what you would call, a, you would have to go to, to a substance abuse classes, which would be for 52 weeks. Every week you would have to pay a minimum of $35 up to $75 according to your income. So when you add up all of those costs, there, the money is there. It's kind of when people say, I don't want to use birth control because it makes me fat. And sometimes, you know, I used to work with pregnant teenagers and I would say, well, what makes you fatter being pregnant or these, the birth control that you're going to be on? So I believe that that is kind of one of the ways that we manipulate our, uh, our way of looking at it as saying, you know, uh, I can't really, you know, the, the cost benefit is, is more, is higher when I stop using I don't know if I'm making sense again, but um, we have to look at whether this is all a need or a want, and that's pretty much with any financial thing. Is this something that I really need in regards to maybe um, shopping? Is this a piece of item that I really need, or is this a want? And it goes the same way with, um, with drug addiction, with any kind of addiction. Okay, Amalia, I'm really appreciating your insight and um, in regards to some of the things you're talking about, especially when you talk about what a person needs versus what a person wants. And sometimes we kind of get it twisted. We get it kind of putting it together. Well, I think I want it, but I don't want it. And then I'm noticing that. And when you're talking about addiction and how did I get there? And I want to spend a little time talking about some of the warning signs, because a lot of times individuals believe and they have this false notion that, you know, we're going to go over some of the things that I could stop whenever I want to, or it's not going to happen to me, or, you know, I was just trying it out. I was a little bored, but they talk about some of the warning signs of addiction. And I want to go over some things with you. And I kind of want you to share a little bit about it. Because one of the things they talk about is family history. Because one of the things, no matter where you grow up or what type of family you have, you know, depending on your ethnicity, I want to first say that when you talk about drug and alcohol addiction or any type of addictive behaviors, it can happen to anybody. It doesn't mean that it's just always within the poor, the middle class, the rich. You can find it no matter what your socioeconomic status is, what your race is. It really doesn't matter, even your occupation, because we have some individuals that they consider themselves a functioning addict. So when we talk about the warning signs and talking about family history, one of the things that, you know, we see a lot of times is the attitude of the family. You know, I remember when I grew up, my mother used to have this saying, I'd rather for my kids to get high at home than to get high in the streets. 
But it kind of confuses a lot of individuals, especially when the family's attitude is, well, I'd rather for them to be, let's say, we haven't even talked about the different classification of drugs, but we minimize it. What about some of the attitudes in regards to one's family history? Well, I think when there's a family history of it and it becomes what we, it's normalized in your family. You know, and maybe in my, in my family, for example, my neither one of my parents drink. No one in our family has a history of um, any kind of addiction, alcohol, or any form of addiction. So for me, it's not, personally, it's not normal for me to see alcohol at my parents' house or to have people come over and drink. And I know that that is not the norm in other people's houses. So I believe that a lot of this is a, a nurture versus na- uh, nature, where if you see something repeatedly throughout your childhood, it becomes part of your being. It becomes part of what is okay. It becomes a normality in your life. So I have heard that from many of my, my clients and my patients that, you know, in my house, my parents had the same thought. You know, if you're going to get drunk, I'd rather you do that in my house. If you're going to be using drugs, I'd rather that you do it in my house so I can keep an eye on you. And it's, it's a very conflicting as a child to say, you know, you can't do this, but it's okay to do it here. So that, I think, goes into a whole different discussion as to healthy parenting, healthy relationships, um, childhood, adolescent behavior, the developmental stages of a child, at what time these onsets of alcohol or drugs are. Um, the alcohol, there, I mean, there's research that says that, that the earlier the onset, the higher the rate of alcohol dependency in adults. So that... Mind, I mean, that, that thought that it's better to have it at my house, I believe that in the long term it has in a direct relationship as to whether an adult has an alcohol dependency or a drug addiction and whether they all also pass it on to their child. Correct. So one of the things I'm hearing you say in regards to family history is speaking on genetics. And um, one of the things is what you're talking about, it sounds like it's in regards to the predispositions in regards of addiction and talking about the genetics. And we are seeing now that some children are being born drug induced. And that's one of the things that's affecting a lot of individuals within our population. And, you know, it's one of the things I tell a lot of individuals that I see, I speak to a lot of times is when you start talking about addiction and you start talking about genetics and the predisposition and and kids that are being born positive to drugs and alcohol one of the things I'm finding especially it with social services is a lot of times people feel well I'm grown and and we did it in our family and it was okay but they're not realizing that a lot of individuals are losing custody of their kids and and social services is getting involved people are getting arrested for two things and one of them is drug and alcohol use, whether it's abuse or whether it's use. But part of it becomes the behavior and genetics and the um, the vulnerabilities that sometimes people pick up from their families. And they can find that that can also render you more or less to addiction. Okay, we're going to take a break. So stay tuned here. We'll be right back. your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Do you have complete control over your thoughts and your life? 
It seems like we do, but there are always outside forces that are wreaking havoc with that control. How do we get our thoughts back on track, so to speak? Listen for help. My thoughts are holding me hostage with Dr. Jeffrey Fannin. When you command the power of thought, you can achieve or have whatever you want. Make the laws of the universe work for you. Tune in every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Life is a journey which never gets easier. As we go through life, we just handle things better as we get to know ourselves. Listen for the Mental Sherpa by Theta Spring. Host Alexandra Janelli believes that each of us are pre-programmed with all the answers and tools we need to move through any situation life throws at us. It's discovering those tools and answers that will set us on the right path to enjoying and navigating life. Listen every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Empowerment. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are tuned in to Precious Predicaments. To reach Jeanette Abney or her guest today, please call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to jabneylmft at gmail.com. Now, back to Precious Predicaments. Okay, welcome back. I want to talk and like today's subject is basically talking about understanding addiction. And we have Amalia here who is our guest today. And basically we are talking about in regards to the difference between versus use and abuse. And one of the things I want to say is when we talk about addiction, we want to make sure that when we address that issue is something that people can relate to. One of the things is taking a taboo out of the word. And when you talk about taking that taboo and stereotype, because we look at it sometimes from what's called a negative cognitation and trying to make it to where individuals can feel more comfortable. Families can know what to do, what not to do. And how can we help an individual to try to get them to the point to where they have an understanding of what's going on? One of the things I found is that addiction is something that it's really not the main issue because normally it's secondary to a primary issue. Now, Amalia, based on, you know, things that you've seen and we have you here as a guest here today on Voice America, and it's basically sharing some insight so that the viewers can gain a sense of awareness as far as what does that mean? What do you mean I'm an, I'm an addict or I have a problem? I, I don't do it all the time. I only do it on the weekends or I go to work every day. And how can we get individuals to gain a better sense of understanding of basically what's that about? Well, I think at the basis of whether you're trying to do a self-reflection on yourself, am I an addict? Am I addicted to this? Most would say if you have to ask yourself, and that would be your first sign. But there also has to be a kind of a mindfulness and a meditation as to whether you are in the denial of a, pro- of a problem. So are you avoiding it? Are you hiding it from other people? Are you minimizing it? Like, you know, if my problem isn't that bad, 
or are you manipulating? I have to admit it to some people, um, only if they ask me about it. Or do you have some kind of um, a thing that maybe I'm feeling good today? I, today I didn't have to whatever. I use less of my addiction than I normally do. So these are just different ways that some folks manipulate their way out of believing that they do have an addiction. So with an addiction, um, like I said, there's a, there's a problem base. There's a problem, and the problem is that we are addicted to something. A lot of times what happens is that we manipulate our own brain into thinking that there is no problem, and that's because it's easier to avoid it completely. And so um, in I would go back to my initial thoughts is that in, if you want to know if you're an addict, are you yourself feeling that you're using whatever it is more than you should be? And do you see that you continue to do this despite there being a negative consequence? And for example, in gambling, are you, have you lost your car to gambling? Have you lost family? Have you lost not able to work? Those are signs that there is an addiction. When this or this person, this object, whatever it is that you are addicted to completely controls your brain. That's all that you're thinking about. That's all you work towards. That's what you look forward to. That's what makes you, what you find your happiness is. Then that is what I would believe to be called an addiction. Okay, so when you talk about addiction and we talk about taking the word out addiction and let's say abuse, which would be a more of a milder form in regards mm-hmm. to talking about the scenario. When we talk about abuse, a lot of times, and I could say from my experience and some of the things that I've seen is trying to get to a person to say or to admit and just basically not even even having a sense of awareness. Am I abusing it? Meaning, am I using more than what I'm supposed to? You know, you ask questions, have you had frequent difficulties filling your role and responsibilities? But if they feel that they're doing what they're supposed to do, they may not think that they're abusing it. You know, are you using in more hazardous situations? Are you going to work under the influence? Do you need something to pick you up? Do you need something to, to get you going every day? And Another big thing that I see is repeated DUIs. I found that a lot of times a person can have multiple DUIs and still will not say, I have a problem, but then get mad because they got pulled over by the police and want to blame it on somebody else. What are you seeing in regards to the repeated legal problems due to substance use in regards to the DUIs or going in and out of programs? Because I know one of the things you said was that it's, you know, you work with individuals that are court ordered into programs and having to be enrolled in programs multiple times. What are some of the things that you're seeing? Well, in regards to being enrolled from the very beginning, you have to be at a stage in your life where you are ready to change. Um, In psychology, we have the pre-contemplation, contemplation, and actual action phases. So, Unfortunately, some of the clients that we see or that I see that come into my group therapy, they are not at a stage in their life where they are ready to change. So it's through these programs where they begin to learn these tools and through discussion with other people who are different stages of change that they begin to see what the effects of their addiction are and where they're going and whether or not that is true. Um, Also, I um, completely lost my train of thought right now. But another thing that I see in my, in my practice is that there is also the always underlining denial, blaming, and manipulating. So manipulating 
the situation manipulating uh, whether or not they did use when it's time for a random drug test, blaming the system, blaming whoever it was that they were with, blaming things that happened in their childhood, blaming situational things um, for their addiction, and denying. And denying is the greatest factor of all, is that they are denying, blaming, minimizing, rationalizing, um, avoiding the problems that this addiction has has caused. So uh, it's a combination. I believe it's a combination of everything. It's a combination of their... I I, I believe that individually we each have a level to which we say, you know, this is enough. And for some people, a second, a third, six years in state prison is not their bottom line where they say, you know what, my life has to change. For some people, their first UI, they will go clean and sober, use a taxi from that point on. But for some people, the addiction is just so strong that their brain has completely morphed the way that they look at how their daily function should be happening. So I believe it's a combination of that, what stage of change a person is in, and how their coping mechanisms towards this addiction and also the different types of denial that they're using. You know, Amalia, it's interesting that you said that because when you start talking about treatment and kind of giving give individuals an insight as far as what treatment looks like, because what a lot of times people get so scared, you know, I've received phone calls, a person saying, well, can you fix my loved one? Can you help them out? Can you, you know, change their behavior? Because all they want them to do is just stop. And it's not about just stopping. It has a lot to do with changing the behavior, changing what I do. I want to talk a little bit and go into some of the different treatment modalities that we have and give our listeners some insight. You know, starting at the top, we kind of have what's, what's called a detox. Sometimes a detox can be a three-day detox, a 10-day detox. It can have um, or provide individuals with either a medical model detox where they may be given medication to help them to reduce the anxieties, the depression that they may be feeling, to kind of help with the withdrawal symptoms. And then from a social model, a medical model detox, we have what's called a social model detox, where they may have to go in and just do a cold turkey. I remember watching the movie Ray Charles. And when I was watching that movie, it was like a fish out of water. You know, he wanted to do it on his own in that movie. And I was, wow, that looked painful, you know. And a lot of times individuals are afraid of that because it's like if you take my drug away or if you take my my substance away or my crutch away, what am I going to have? You know, I'm going to have nothing and I don't want to feel that pain. So then from going through just the detox and the withdrawals and all of those things that people go through, Then we have what's called intensive outpatient services, where an individual can go to treatment and and receive services, and then you have outpatient, and then you have the AA to NA meetings. Now, you talked a little bit about the different stages change and when a person is ready, and then sharing some of that information as far as what type of treatment types are available because a lot of families and a lot of individuals have no idea even what that even mean or what that even consists of. Can you shed some insight into some of the things you see when you're doing intakes or enrolling individuals into services? Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, 
Well, when it comes to a drug addiction, there are different programs or groups according to whether this is, and I'm speaking specifically in Southern California, not too sure how things work across the nation because I know that we have some international listeners. But in Southern California, you, if you are, um, if you have a court case in the drug court related to a drug charge, then you will be put into a different kind of court-mandated um, program. So these court-mandated programs are either that you call in and drug test as a way to stay sober or you join a group. Um, and the length of the group varies according to what group you're put into. So if you're a first offender, you get put into one group. Uh, if this is your second offense, you're into a different group. Um, and if this is an ongoing addiction um, where you have repeated drug charges, then you have a, a group that is more like six months to a year. So the goal of these groups is once a week, you meet with other people who are in your same situation um, addressing these, these topics of um, addiction. So in these groups, you have a psychoeducational topic every week where you discuss um, certain things like communication skills, uh, self-help, the importance of AA meetings, of having self-help um, meetings, also learning a little bit about relapse prevention, learning about drugs, how they affect your brain, how they affect your family structure, how... Um, maybe stress management or problem managing. So these group sessions vary from 10 weeks to 26 weeks to 52 weeks. The people that come to these groups, as I mentioned, most of them are court-managed, but I'm also seeing that there's a lot of people who are on this kind of cusp or they're seeing that they are beginning to have an addiction to something. And um, in my case, it's specifically for drugs. And they will come in and just do a voluntary program, a substance abuse program, just so that they are receiving this additional weekly um, help to to deal and discuss with with whatever the topic of um, that week is. So the stigma of I'm a drug addict and this is what my program is going to be like. It's it's one of those things where it's not you don't really get to see a picture of it until you're there. So I had originally thought, you know, rehab was when you're in jail, and that's pretty much where you go cold turkey and then your life is great. But there's all these other things that happen once you are cited, um, you have a criminal charges, and you are going to court. So most of my clients that do come to a group, they do have an ongoing probation officer. Sometimes they're an informal probation. If they're voluntary, there is no probation. Um, we do have to send reports to a judge every week. Every three months, they go in front of a judge to to say, hey, I am on my week, I'm on week 24, I missed three weeks, I have had so many drug tests and I've been negative. And ultimately, it's the, uh, the judge who decides um, how many weeks and how long a program will be effective for that certain person. Okay, Amalia, we're going to take a break. So stay tuned here. We'll be right back. Okay, I'm back. Um, I was basically talking about how basically when we talk about 
the individuals that come into programs. And in order for someone to get help, they first have to recognize that there's a problem. But sometimes getting that person to that point can be a challenge because they may not feel that they have a problem. Sometimes it could be the pressure from friends. It could be the pressure from families that finally move someone to get the help that they need, that they may need. I want to talk about 10 common lies and not just a lie itself, because sometimes people start believing these things. The individual tell themselves in order to minimize what's going on, either with their own addiction or sometimes a family member may help in regards to enabling or being codependent and things of that nature and not even have knowledge that they're doing such because addiction takes a powerful hold not only on the person but also on their loved ones, their family members, and it can become a challenge. And a lot of times parents, friends, bosses don't know what to do. But I want to go on to some and give people some insight as far as one of the number one things that most people believe is I can quit anytime I want. Amalia, can you give me some insight as far as some of the things you may hear when you are conducting groups and a person say, well, I don't have a problem. I can quit anytime I want to. Mm-hmm. Oh, it happens every week. And, um, you know, I give examples. I read newspaper stories, show videos of, you know, um, interventions. And there's never, as from what I've seen, there's never a correlation like, oh, that could be me. Because I think innately we have this thought that I am stronger than my addiction. I can control my addiction. I'm not as bad as the person next to me. Oh, wow, you're on your second DUI. I only have one. So there's a disconnect somewhere and where we we do, um, from what I've seen, we have a disconnect um, between this could happen to me if I continue on the path that I'm going. So, I mean, I'm over here shaking my head, saying yes to everything that you said. And I think that's just another way that our brain tricks us into thinking that we can overcome an addiction on our own. And some do, some do, but the majority... Um, that have, it takes many years and many things have to happen between they say, this is enough. I cannot control this and I need help. So when they get to that point where they think they can quit whenever they want, do they have to find a rock bottom or what is a rock bottom for individuals? Yeah. And like I mentioned earlier, everybody's rock bottom is different. Everybody. So we have to look at this as an individual addiction, as, as an individual problem within each of us. What I find normal is not what someone else um, would find normal. What I see with my clients and my patients is completely different from what in my personal life I would um, I would accept as normal. So everyone everyone has a moment in their life when they say, you know, this is not making me happy. I am not happy with the way that things are going. I cannot continue to live like this. And that is a changing point. And I think Oprah calls it your aha moment where we have this changing point as to where our next step is going to be. For some, their next step will go deeper into their addiction. For others, they will seek out the help. So hopefully, with the stigma, I mean, what we're trying to do all as mental health providers on this show and on the streets and the fields, um, people who see clients and patients on the daily, we're trying to remove the stigma of addiction, the stigma of getting help, 
stigma of going to a therapist and the stigma of reaching out and asking someone to showing our vulnerability to say, yes, I have a problem. I need help with this problem. Can you help me with this problem? So for my clients, it has been somebody else, an exterior factor that says, you got caught doing this. It's time for you to get help. So what we do is we plant those seeds, we give them the tools, we hopefully open their eyes, and that's why it's an extensive program. It's not that you come in for eight hours and you get a certificate. You come every single week, and if you miss a week, we add that to the six months you were supposed to or the year that you were supposed to because it's through this gradually over time that we begin to peel off the label, the, the layers of denial, blaming, and manipulating so that a person can see truly what an addiction is and that they are addicted. A lot of times, like I said, your brain just takes over and you just don't even realize that there is an addiction that's controlling everything um, in your life. Okay, Molly, I want to throw something else out there for you. What about, okay. have you ever heard the, a person saying, well, I didn't hurt nobody. It's my body. Mm-hmm. I could do what I want to do. It's my business. Is what I do. I can do whatever I want. Ain't nobody business mm-hmm. but mine. And even though we know that could be further from the truth, because a lot of times a person, when you're talking about feelings and their moods, can be unpredictable, unreliable. Sometimes they can even be embarrassed. And even though they feel it's nobody's business, one of the things mm-hmm. we want the listeners to know that it's everybody's business because it puts such a burden on healthcare system due to the impact of addiction on their brain and their body and Mm -hmm. sometimes we wonder that you know they think well I can go to work I can do what I want to do I know what I'm doing and they Mm -hmm. really truly believe that you know I don't want to throw nobody up under the bus but a lot of times we hear people say I work better when I'm high or I can drive Mm -hmm. better I could see better if I smoke some weed or if I do these things but mm-hmm. a lot of times individuals don't realize that it does take a toll it is somebody's business we do need to do something about it and that there are truly people out there that care and that their family members also care so a lot of times it's not that people are trying to try to get into their business and try to tell them what to do but try to encourage individuals to let them know when you know better you do better and basically breaking this stigma, breaking this taboo to let individuals know you're not alone. There is help out there. Step out on faith and try to change some of the things that you're doing. Because if it's not working for you, you need to try something different. If drinking is making you feel more depressed, try something else. Mm-hmm. So that's what we want the listeners to hear today. Don't be scared. Mm-hmm. Try something else. Mm-hmm. Another high, you know. They used to say that the high is a lie, and we find that mm-hmm. that is to be to be so true. Okay, we're going to be coming back pretty soon. We're going to take another break, and as we take this break, I want you to think about some of the things that, and some of the excuses that you tell yourself, or that you've heard family members say. Okay, okay, keep on, keep on. You know. Because we want individuals to live more of a healthy and productive life. So let's take a break.
us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. Are you happy in your life or are you just settling? It's time to speak out, take control of your existence, and let your life speak. Bart Queen is the host of A Hero's Journey. His personal goal is to help you find your voice, use that voice, and live the life that you deserve to live. Do more, be more, and give more. Tune in to A Hero's Journey on the Voice America Empowerment Channel, live every Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time. You owe it to yourself to tune in and make your voice count. Do you feel alone trying to conquer life's challenges? Do you feel that there's sometimes nowhere to turn and nobody really understands? Remember, you are not alone. Every week, host April Joy Ford, who has faced adversity as a constant in her life, helps you rise above life's challenges with your own blueprint meant to discover the powerful you. April's challenges have included childhood sexual abuse, becoming a widow and single parent at 32, and other such curveballs. She'll help you get empowered holistically every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Empowerment. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. You are tuned in to Precious Predicaments. To reach Jeanette Abney or her guest today, please call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to jabneylmft at gmail.com. Now, back to Precious Predicaments. Okay, Amalia, before we went on a break, I kind of threw something out there in regards to I'm not hurting nobody. It's nobody's business. Let's talk a little bit about that. And what is uh, what yeah. is your insight in regards to that? Well, I think you you nailed it right on it, is that we, there's this rationalization with an addiction where I try to convince people that there are good reasons for me to have this. I mean, I, I've had a really tragic childhood. I deserve this. I had a really bad day at work. I deserve this. I had to put up with so-and-so. So I, there's really good reasons where I shouldn't be responsible for having to deal with my addiction. And there's also this love affair that we have with our addiction. As, and, you know, I have these great memories of being at whatever location, whatever party it was, hanging out with my friend who is no longer around we have these great memories of how this addiction was so loving and great, and and we had such a good time with this addiction. So exactly what you said, we have this rationalization of, or we rationalize, um, give really good reasons as to why it's okay for me to have this addiction while we're having this love affair with the same toxic addiction that's causing us all of this pain and grief and and just guilt and tearing our families apart and, and doing that. So I'm right with you. Um, The next one in regards to, you know, we talked a lot about different types of drugs. I heard you say a lot about alcohol. You know, we have different classifications of drugs. We have uppers, downers, all arounders, you know, we have the methamphetamine. We have different drugs coming out, crocodile, which is like a flesh-eating drug that just eats people up. And a lot of times individuals, they say the stronger the high, the more powerful it is, the more people are trying to engage in this type of behavior. But one of the things that we're seeing 
and it has a lot to do with prescription drugs. And the doctor prescribed me this medication, so it must be fine. Can you share a little bit what about what you see in regards to individuals that are coming to you with the history or that are engaging in prescription drug use? Mm-hmm. Well, it's funny that you should mention prescription drug use because when young Amalia was in graduate school and she did an intake on this very wealthy off-to-do, um, I believe when you do an intake, you look at someone's income in order to see what their sliding scale fee would be for this, um, their substance abuse program. And she was making about twenty to 30000 a month. Um, and she said to me, you know, I just never thought I'd see myself in these back alleys getting prescription drugs. And to me, I just was like, prescription drugs? Don't you just go to your doctor for them? So I had completely zero clue um, about prescription drugs and how you get them and what it is and all of that. I've since now learned that it's a barter system and you can get your prescription to sell them for in exchange for getting your car fixed or whatever. So with prescription drugs, it all begins with there is a pain in my physical body and I need this pill to fix that physical ailment. But with any addictions over time, it becomes a physiological need where you begin to physiologically change, where you your heart rate goes up, you, um, you're feeling physiological feelings this addiction um, is sending you. And with the prescription medication, um, that's just an additional layer as to why this addiction is good for me and why this addiction is something that I need and it's for me personally I see that this prescription drug addiction is harder to overcome because of that whole I gave it the doctor gave it to me it's something that I need and the doctor continues to give it to me um, just because we we I mean why would a doctor give me something that is bad for me Well, one of the things we're learning is that not all doctors are bad. Some are good. And we also know now as we're learning and gaining a sense of awareness that sometimes, you know, a doctor may not prescribe with care or the patient may not have been honest with their doctors in regards to providing them information. And going from one doctor to another. And that's what I've seen in my practice is they go from one doctor to another. Correct. And not only just doctor shopping, but hospital shopping, going from emergency room to emergency room and things of that nature and sharing medication. I remember when I was growing up, you know, people in my family, we didn't know that it was illegal to take other people's prescription. We didn't know that if you are caught with prescriptions that is for pills that's in a bag or the, the there's no label on the bottle that individuals are now getting arrested and having a felony on their records because of things that they really didn't know about. So we're trying to, and we're learning more. And as we educate ourselves and begin to gain a sense of awareness about different things of that nature, because sometimes people don't know until they get in trouble. But one of the things Mm -hmm. I want to say is when we talk about prescription drugs is it seems like opiates is on the rise and opiates appears to be one of the most commonly abused prescription drugs along with a lot of different anti-anxiety and sleeping pills. You know, individuals used to be able to take Excedrin PM or Tylenol PM or things of that nature. And 
these things are being abused. So talking about opiates, based on your experience, give our our listeners some insight as far as what you're learning and what you're seeing in regards to opiates. Um, I think you've covered it. Um, the, there's a rise in opiates. Um, the, the thing about opiates is that it, in the DSM-5, or, you know, as therapists, what we use uh, to diagnose, this has become a brain disease where over time you have to use, you, you have you build up this tolerance so that leads to more and more substances needed to achieve that same effect that you initially have. So, the, the thing about opiates is just that, that it just completely takes over your brain where you have this romanticized feeling of that first time that I used it, which you are never going to have again. And I, I believe that that is just the detriment of, of opiates is that you will never get that high that everyone searches for like they did the first time. So that's what you're talking about is chasing that high, chasing that dragon and, yeah. and things of that nature. And, um, you know, like I said, when we know better, again, we do better. And mm-hmm. by education, by intervention, by prevention are some mm-hmm. of the things that we can do. You know, in, as far as elementary schools, we're finding that a lot of times individuals are developing programs. There's a lot of funding out there. There's a lot of resources. The Internet is very helpful. But one of the things is we have to do better. We really have to do better with trying to get individuals to come on board, to try to want to motivate themselves, to help themselves. Let's give, or can you give our listeners some insight, some information on what can a person do if they have a teenager or a young adult or a child and they're looking at some of the behaviors? What for, let's say, a parent that may not have a background or know anything about addiction. What is some? What are some of the signs or symptoms that they need to be aware of to know if their child is in danger or have a problem? Mm-hmm. Well, I think as a parent, if you, you know, by default, if you are concerned about your child, then but you sound to me like you're a parent who knows your child. So as a parent, I believe that you know when your child is looking different, acting different. Um, it's also hard with adolescents because that adolescent behavior is so complicated where, um, you know, there's the anger of finding yourself, changing your look, having this different set of family, uh, of friends, and wanting to experiment. And that's all normal adolescent behavior. But I think for parents who are noticing that there's something withdrawn from their child, you might just want to look for the physical things. Um, are their eyes bloodshot? Do they have nosebleeds? I mean, nosebleeds. Um, have you noticed any change in their patterns? Are they not going to certain friends? How do they have new friends? Are they sleeping differently, eating differently? Um, maybe their physical appearance is changing or there's, you know, unusual smells. Maybe they're, you're smelling something different on their clothing or on their body. Um, maybe, I mean, those are just physical things. Um, in regards to behavioral, I would just think of maybe if your child was someone who was always motivated and now there's a lack of motivation or they appear to be withdrawn or fearful or anxious, um, that's a physiological, a psychological warning that there is some signs of 
alcohol or uh, substance abuse. Not to say, not to get worried, not to, I don't want to worry the parents out there, because I remember personally me, um, I grew up in the 90s, and so that's when in Southern California, that's when a lot of gangs were happening, and so my parents went to a meeting, and they told them, you know, is your child wearing black? Um, I wore a lot of black during that time. So um, I had, my parents had to have that uncomfortable discussion with me as to what gangs were, and I was far from it. But, um, so that's just something that's been in the back of my mind. I don't want to scare your parents, but you know your child best. And if you're starting to notice that there's something is not right, communication is the only thing that you can, um, that will help you to figure out or to decide whether your sus- suspicions are correct or not. And when that isn't working, if you have a defiant teenager, then you have to look for the physical and the psychological warning, which I, I listed, you know, bloodshot eyes, uh, different scents, maybe demanding more privacy, um, lack of motivation, things like that. Okay, and there are also a lot of resources and programs out there for parents that may suspect that their child or teen or young adult do have a problem. There is help available. There are support groups that are out there. There are people that are empowering other individuals and educating individuals. So, Amalia, can you give our listeners some other places that they can go besides looking at the behavior, looking at the appearance, looking at and noticing, you know, we talk about social media, we talk about advertisement. Back in the day, there used to be a lot of advertisement about, you know, drugs and they glamorized it. So now we have to try to flip the script and get it to the point to where it's not going to be so cool to be high anymore. Can you give our listeners some information on different type of support groups? Um, I think one of the largest ones that comes to mind is Al-Anon. And Al-Anon is a support group for family members of an addict. Um, there are open meetings. There's many of them during the day. There's different sorts of meetings um, regards to whether it's NAAA, LGBT community. So I would start there, maybe reaching out to your local chapter of Al-Anon, A-L-A-N-O-N, and those are parents and family members who have and who are helping someone who is going through an addiction. Um, I I've, I would say that that would be the best place to start. Okay, and you know, I don't know about, on well, I only know in Orange County, in L.A. County, in Riverside County, San Diego County, but basically there, you can call 211. 211, it's like 411, you can get information. Mm -hmm. You can also call the California Drug Rehab Center Hotline, which is 800-501-9330. There is also the DrugAddictionHelpNow.org which also offers low-cost, no-cost treatment for individuals. There's basically, they have places for Christian Drug and Alcohol Treatment Centers.com. So we got to utilize our sources, get to our, learn more, re- obtain more resources so that we can find places to connect because we have to connect before we can create, correct. And in addition to that, we also want to let individuals know that you're not alone. And there are people to call. There's hotline numbers you can call. You can go online. You can call the, or you can go online and look up the SAMHSA website. You can also Google drug and alcohol addiction and find treatment facilities in your area. 
But let's change the taboo, stop believing, and let's encourage one another, help one another in order to correct this type of behavior so that we can all be healthy, happy, and safe. We hope you've enjoyed this week's edition of Precious Predicaments with Jeanette Abney. Please join us again for another program next Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Until then, have an easy and relaxing week. You've got this.